Father, you are the God of the universe. And there are a million things we could say to you. And it still wouldn't be enough to tell of your goodness and to tell of your faithfulness. So Lord, if you'll just accept this today as our prayer. Thank you that when we were running away from you, your goodness was running after us. Thank you that when we had turned our backs against you, you never ceased to be good to us. And so Father, I just ask this morning, will you help us to see that in your word? That even as your people and as we have, have just run head first to our own destruction, you have always been faithful to bring us back and to call us your own. Show us that today. Father, speak to us today words that will edify your church and bring glory to your name. Sanctify us in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. Speak it to our hearts today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And I wanna welcome you this morning. Man, who said it's like 25 degrees outside? around this. It's plenty warm in here, man. It's so good to see you guys here this morning. If you're our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. We're honored to have you worshiping with us on this uh, chilly Beaufort morning. If you want to uh, turn with me in a Bible, Judges chapter one is where we're going to spend our time together today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right underneath one of the seats in front of you. Um, and if you've never used a Bible before, there's a table of contents on the inside. Just look for the word Judges and go to that page number and, and just get to that first page because we're starting at Judges chapter one this morning. Um, if you're new to our church family, what we typically do about 70% of the time is we just work together through books of the Bible. We believe um, what is best for the growth and the maturity of, of us as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, the best way to get the full counsel of God's word is just to walk through it one book at a time. And so that's what you're gonna find here about 70% of the time. If you're not familiar at all with the Bible, if you didn't even know Judges was a book in the Bible, that's fine because um, I'm gonna teach it in a way that you can actually understand it. And, and as you come in here every single week, um, we want you to be able to engage with what God has to speak to you through his word today. And so Judges chapter one is where we're gonna spend our time together this morning. On your way in today, you should have been handed one of these worship guides. We give these out every single week and these are important because um, we have community groups that meet all week long. And when groups get together, what they do is they talk about the passage of scripture that we looked at in, in worship. So when community groups meet this week, they'll talk about what you're hearing this morning from Judges one and two. And especially today on the inside cover of that worship guide, we're gonna find some background context because before we just jump right into this book today, wanna make sure you understand what it is that we're getting into that really sets the stage um, for where we go. Um, as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers and as a church, we believe that all scripture comes from God and that all scripture has been given to us for our good, even the hard parts. And there aren't many parts of the Bible that get harder than the book of Judges. To, to, to put it kindly, this was in my, my, my Friday email that goes out every single week, y'all, the book of Judges is a mess. Uh, who was here for Seek Week Friday night, January 12th, about a week and a half ago? Our friend Tyson Coughlin, he didn't even know we were jumping into the book of Judges. And, and he just set it up for, perfectly for us this morning. You read the book of Judges, man, it's rated R, right? 
It, it is messy. It is full of death. It is full of destruction. It is full of violence. The whole book of Judges is like the first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. I mean, it's just, it's an absolute chaotic mess. Again, if you've grown up in the church, and some of us didn't even know these things were in the Bible because it wasn't, you know, on the little flannel graph in Sunday school when we were little, and and you didn't hear a lot of these stories when you were a kid. And, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to read some of these things and say, these people, th- this is this is crazy. What are we actually reading here? Some of you didn't know the stuff we're going to read was allowed to be in your Bible. And it's really going to push us. It's really going to test us. But we believe that all Scripture comes from God. We believe that all Scripture is for our good. And even the ugliness of Scripture, it points us to a greater hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Just to give us some context on the background of the book of Judges, we don't know exactly who the author was. Some Jewish traditions say that it was possibly Samuel or multiple authors, but it's um, always been accepted as part of the canon of Scripture, so there's no serious contest there. The date of these events were unfolding between the 12th and 14th centuries B.C or you really could say 14th to 12th because we we do time backwards when we're talking about BC. So over those couple of centuries. And the key verse that really sets the stage for the beginning of the book of Judges is found at the end of the book of Judges. The very last verse of of the book of Judges in verse 21, 25, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the problem with the book of Judges. There's a vacuum of godly leadership. For centuries, God's people had been in the bondage of slavery in Egypt. The Lord raises up a deliverer named Moses. He leads them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They get into the wilderness. Moses dies. There's a protege of Moses named Joshua. He leads the people into the promised land. They start their conquest, but they don't complete it. And now there's a vacuum of leadership. Nick Saban has retired, and it's like, who's up next? And, and so we, we see that, 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 you know, Ken DeVore, that here it is, or Kaylin DeVore, it's, it's, it's really nobody. There's nobody coming in. It's, there's no real person who just emerges as the key leader among the people. And the result is everything just devolves into chaos. Everybody's living by their own standard. It's, it's all about what I think is right, what I feel is right, what appears right to me, what seems right to me. Does that sound familiar at all? The reason the book of Judges has such relevance is because that is the type of culture we're living in today, where, where morality is relative. It's, it's really up to you. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and the corresponding result is chaos. There, there's no moral foundation that we're all universally agreed upon and standing upon, so everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. And so the purpose of the book of Judges is to warn us as believers, even as a negative example, is to warn us of what happens when we reject God's word to go our own way. What that always leads to, it leads to death, it leads to destruction, it leads to chaos and devastation in our lives. So the key themes that we see repeating throughout the book of Judges are the consequences of our sin, what happens when we reject God's word to do our own thing, but also we see in spite of our faithlessness, we see the faithfulness of God. Because even as we see the consequences of our sin, we see how the Lord continuously delivers sinners. God is faithful to his people in spite of their faithlessness, in spite of our faithlessness. God remains fiercely committed to his people. So here's the cycle of judges. Here's the story that's going to repeat basically week in and week out. We're going to get six weeks into this series. You're going to be like, I feel like I've heard this story before. And it's because you have. The book of Judges, really the whole Old Testament, it's, it's like Groundhog Day. It's just re- repeat, repeat, repeat over and over. So here's the cycle. God's people will fall into sin. 
because they fall into sin, turn their backs against the Lord. The Lord allows them to be conquered and oppressed by their enemies. In their oppression, the people of God cry out for help. In his faithfulness, God always raises up a deliverer who brings them out of their oppression. But eventually the people fall right back into sin after a period of peace. And, and the regression that we see throughout the book of Judges is not only do they fall back into sin, things get progressively worse and worse. So from Othniel, the first judge who we'll see next week, all the way down to Samson, we see that each one of them, one judge after the other, things just seem to get progressively worse. And again, that story resonates with us because that's our story. That this is the cycle that so many of us live in. We, we fall into sin. We're being overcome by our sin. We're being overcome by the consequences of our actions. We cry out to God for help. God hears our cry. He's faithful. He reminds us, I've sent you, Jesus. You've been delivered from your sin. We experience a moment of peace. And then by Monday, man, we're right back in it. And so the story of Judges resonates with us because it's our story. And it's a story of how God continues, in spite of our own faithlessness, to deliver us from evil. And so here's some reading tips as we go through the book of Judges, because it is a complex book. It's a complicated book. Understanding as you read the book of Judges and really your whole Bible, what is descriptive in Scripture is not always prescriptive. Meaning, you know, just because we see some of these, you know, quote unquote, heroes of the faith doing some terrible things, that's not permission for you to go do those same terrible things. What we see through the book of Judges is, is that sometimes, man, God doesn't use us because of who we are. He uses us in spite of who we are. We're going to see some guys through this story with some glaring character flaws, and we should not look at them as models to imitate in, in the ways that they sin and, and in some of the actions that they perform. So, so keep in mind, what's descriptive is not always prescriptive. Also, we'll see some of this today. Don't confuse God's provision with God's permission. Again, sometimes God blesses the people and he gives them victory in spite of the things that they do. And we shouldn't take their actions necessarily to be positive examples. It's more a testimony to God's faithfulness than it is to theirs. Now, here's a big one. If you're reading the book of Judges and, and, and you see some of the evil, awful things people do and you can't believe what you're reading, good. That, that's, that's the point here. Judges paints for us a picture of a life that is detached from the word of God. It paints for us this picture. This is what happens. This is what your life will look like. If you reject God, if you reject his word, you decide to go your own way. If you're reading these things, you say, oh my goodness, this world, these people, this culture, this was terrible. You're supposed to feel that. And it's supposed to leave you longing for something better and the hope that we find in Christ. And that's the, the final tip as you read the book of Judges. Don't forget to look for Jesus on every page. As, as, as a church, we have a strong conviction. We preach the Bible through what we call a Christocentric lens. We believe Jesus is the hero of the whole Bible. This is how many of us were taught uh, growing up, like Sunday school if you grew up in the church. A lot of us grew up in context where the Old Testament was taught as if Jesus never came. And, and so, you know, with the end of the story of Daniel, it's like, hey, be like Daniel. Or the end of the story of David, it's like, be, be brave like, like David. But all of these characters, all these figures in the Old Testament, this is what we call in theology, we call this typology. They were types of Christ. They were, they were shadows of the ultimate Savior, the ultimate Messiah who was to come. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we see positive types. We see people like the judges do some good things to deliver God's people. But then we also see them do some awful things. So when we see them doing positive things, that's a shadow, a positive shadow of Christ who is to come. But when we see them doing bad things, that is the opposite of who Jesus is. And it leaves us longing for a savior that only Jesus can be. 
And we're going to see these cycles repeat over and over and over again. People fall into sin. They're conquered by their sin. They cry out to God for help. God delivers them. They experience peace. Wash, rinse, repeat. And chapters one and two really set the trajectory for the rest of the book. So so what I'm going to do today, this is really great news on this cold Sunday morning. Today from Judges one and two, I'm going to show you how to ruin your life. I want to show you how to absolutely ruin your life. If we follow the pattern of God's people in Judges 1 and 2, what we'll see today is it is a path to chaos, devastation, and destruction. But here's the good news for us. By learning how to ruin our life, we're simultaneously learning how not to ruin our life. By doing the opposite of the picture that we see here and clinging to the hope that we have in Christ. So from Judges 1 and 2 this morning, we're going to see that the path to ruining our life begins by rejecting God's word to go our own way. The cracks in the foundation we see in chapter one are actually fault lines that will run throughout the rest of the book. If you want to ruin your life, do the things that we see in Judges 1 and 2 this morning. So let's read from Judges 1 again. Some of these verses, we're going to do just some overviews um, and and bigger narrative portions of scripture. Um, And uh, so, but beginning in Judges 1, let's read verses 1 through 7. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Now, time out. We're off to a good start. One verse, we're off to a good start. They inquired of the Lord. Moses is gone. Joshua's gone. What do we need to do? Well, those guys were always talking to the Lord. Let's go inquire the Lord. And again, this should resonate for us as a church. We're coming off the heels of Seek Week. We, we saw what happens when we seek the Lord with our whole hearts. Amen. We saw dozens of people publicly respond to the gospel. We got a full baptism class that's going to happen this afternoon. Lord willing, we'll celebrate those when the weather warms up a little bit more. And so we rejoice, man. We see like the, the fruit of what happens when we seek the Lord, even in the midst of tragedy, which we navigated as a church family for a couple weeks. We've seen the positive side of what happens when we seek the Lord. Judges shows us what happens when we don't seek the Lord, or when we seek the Lord, get the answer, and then do the opposite of what he says. It's all good for one verse. They inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonibezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonibezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him. Here we go. Welcome to the book of Judges. And cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And guys, like, that's like the PG version of, of, of the stuff that happens in this book. This is one of the more benign examples. And Adonibezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So from verses 1 through 7, this is what we see first this morning. Here's how to ruin your life. If you want to ruin your life, first, just ignore what God says. Ignore what God says to go your own way. That's where the path to ruining your life begins. And understand, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What are the first recorded words that we see Satan speak in all of Scripture? It's a question he asks. What's he say? 
Did God really say that? The first thing Satan does, the first recorded words in scripture, he attacks the clarity of the word of God. And he wants Eve to make it seem like it's confusing, like it's complicated. And, and she initially does pretty well. She's like, well, yeah, I mean, he, he said, don't eat of the tree. Like you go back one chapter before, she's repeating exactly what the Lord said. And Satan kind of plays this game. He's like, well, yeah, I know that's what he said. That's not really what he meant. And, and the Lord had spoken the consequence. If you, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so she, she repeats that. She does pretty well. But then Satan's, well, it's, it's not really like that. I mean, he, he knows that if you do this, your eyes will be open. You'll become your true self. You know, you'll become like God. You'll be like him and you won't die. And, and so these are his tactics. His tactics have not changed since the opening of human history. His tactics have always been two things. It is to attack the clarity of the word of God and to downplay the consequences of your sin. This is exactly what he tries to do. He wants to attack the clarity of the word of God and downplay the consequences of sin. God said, if you take and eat, you will die. Satan said, no, you can take and eat and you won't die. And so that's, that's the space that he wanted to get her into. And so it always begins with attacking the clarity of the word of God. Again, his tactics today haven't changed. And so, so the rebellion here, the ignoring what he says in verses one through seven, it's subtle, but it's there. When, when the people go to inquire of the Lord and ask, who should go first against the Canaanites, how does the Lord respond? Judah. Judah shall go up first. Judah shall go up first. He's abundantly clear. You send Judah, but, but who goes after the Canaanites? Judah and Simeon. The Lord didn't say send Judah and Simeon to the Canaanites. He said, no, no, Judah will go up against them. And so it's, it's subtle, but, but it, is, it is absolutely there. What we see here, it's a departure from something that God had clearly called him to do. And what we have to recognize is on Judah's part, this is a subtle act of faithlessness in the power of God. This is just amnesia that we see God's people get all through the Old Testament. How quickly they forget that the Lord delivered them without them ever lifting a finger. He sends plagues on Egypt, and as they're running away from Pharaoh's army, he, he brings down the Red Sea on top of their chariots. He brings them safely to the other side without them ever drawing a sword. And you see all these things. And so, so this is the game that, that some of us will play sometimes. It's like we know the word of God. We know what he wants us to do. Like we've been given a clear answer. And so we're kind of playing this game. We're like, hey, I know who you are, and I trust what you say. But in case you're not that... And in case you won't do this, I've got a backup plan here on the other side. Judah's trying to help God. And again, this, this seems really, really logical. I mean, if you just dig into the meat of scripture, what we find is that Simeon is a brother tribe of Judah. Both of them were sons of Levi, um, or, or sons of Leah, who was uh, um, uh, one of the wives of Jacob. But more specifically, we've got to recognize it's no accident that Simeon is the one who is invited on this. Genesis 34 is a really ugly episode where the Canaanites and the Perizzites um, defile Jacob's daughter, uh, Dinah. And she's distraught by this. And obviously, as, as her brothers, you've got um, Simeon and Levi. They're incensed about this. And we don't have time to dig, dig into it this morning. But, but Simeon, in particular, has a history of violence and cruelty towards his enemies when it comes to the Canaanites and Perizzites. 
If you go back and read Genesis 34, he kills these guys in like one of the most creative ways imaginable. We don't have time to dive into it this morning, but that's his history. He's got a history of violence. He's got a history of anger. He's got a history of mistreatment of his enemies. So in their uh, anger is retribution. They rise up, they kill all these guys. And so, so again, it's no accident that Simeon is the one who's invited on this raid. And, and so here's the ways that we ignore the word of God. Sometimes we ignore the word of God by taking away from what it says, but sometimes we ignore the word of God by adding to what it says. It's by going beyond what God has asked us to do and what God intends for us to do. There's subtle ways that we, in our culture today, you, you'll see even in churches all across our nation, depart from the word of God. In some cases, there's an explicit departure. I mean, from, from pulpits on Sunday morning, you will hear things like the Bible is not inspired, it's not authoritative, it's full of issues, it's full of errors, it's full of problems, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's moral principles are no longer binding on your life. We're gonna get more into this in the book of Judges. I think it's worth noting that the stats don't lie on this. The churches that are doing that are collapsing like sandcastles in a tsunami. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost a joke, like how quickly churches and denominations that decide to go that way are rapidly dying. And, and so in some ways, it's an explicit denial. In other ways, though, it's more implicit. Sometimes we deny the word of God by, by either trying to help it along because it's making us a little bit uncomfortable, or we deny the word of God not by what we do say, but by what we won't say. Like there's, there's some things in scripture and we, we see this all through judges that make us a little bit uncomfortable, make us a little bit uneasy. And we struggle to just let the word of God stand on its own or we are just completely apologetic that it says what it says. I listened to uh, this, this message series recently. It was this pastor I didn't know much about, but he was doing this sermon series on the attributes of God and I was really getting into it. And he was just kind of going through the attributes of God one after the other. And, and so in a sermon about the love of God, he preached about the love of God. And in a sermon about the grace of God, he really preached about the grace of God. And a sermon about the mercy of God, he really preached about the mercy of God. But then he gets to a sermon about the wrath of God. And I was like, man, he's, he's taking these subjects head on and looking forward to this, but this is how the sermon went. It was about 10 minutes of apologizing for what he was going to say and then barely saying it and then essentially closing by apologizing for everything that he said. And, and guys, don't get me wrong. Like the Apostle Paul is clear. It, it is possible for us to be like noisy gongs, clanging cymbals in such a way that we say things that we're saying them so harshly. We're beating people over the head with it so much that, that it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But please hear me when I say this this morning. There is a fine line between wanting to be winsome and just being ashamed of what the Bible says. There's a, a very, very fine line between wanting to engage people in a way that they can receive it and just being flat out embarrassed about what the Bible has to say. And I think every once in a while, you, need the, you and I, guys, we, we need the reminder, God is not ashamed of one single word that's in his book. It's his word. And we just need to be able to let the word of God stand on its own, do its own thing, listen to what it says, receive what it says, and not feel like we have to help what it says. It's really interesting, too, if you go into verses four through seven, we, we get this example of judgment that unfolds um, early on. So again, Simeon, this is part of his history. This is what's in his background, cruelty of his, you know, towards his enemies, history of violence. And so they, they conquer Adonai Bezek, which just means king of Bezek. And, 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 and in order to really just humiliate him and make it known like this guy's done, they chop off his thumbs and his big toes. That's just mean, right? And, and we read a passage like this. We look at something like this in our modern sensibilities, like that's awful. 
Like, how is something like this allowed to happen? Like, wh- what is going on that, that God's people would carry out something this wicked, this terrible? And, and that just offends all of our, our modern sensibilities, like, to the max capacity. But I think it's really, really worth noting here that Adonabezek, when this happens to him, he receives this as just retribution. The prevailing mentality of the day was, was an eye for an eye. And he receives this as the just judgment of God. He's like, you know what? I've had this coming. I did this same thing to 70 other kings. I deserve this. This is God's judgment for me. This is God's punishment for me. And so, so let, me, let me just press into us a little bit this morning. What does it say about us as a culture of believers when we have a harder time receiving the truth about God's judgment than a pagan king who lost his thumbs and big toes. Like, what's it say about us that we have a, we look at that and we're like, no, there's no possible way into these things. But the guy that it actually happened to is going, no, I deserve this. The way I treated others, the way I carried out punishment, that this is just retribution for what I've done. Y'all, we just need that reminder every once in a while. God's not ashamed of this book. He's not ashamed of this book. He's not. We don't have to help the word of God. We can trust what he says. We can trust that it is good. We can trust it to do work at a heart level that you and I can never do with the best of our words. And so, so what, we, what we see here happening in chapter one, there's a couple things that are unfolding, is they are rejecting, they're, they're not trusting in the power of God. Judah's not trusting in the power of God, not receiving what it is that the Lord has already said. Because again, if you go back and you read, it's, it's clear. Judges 1, God says, I have given the land into your hand. D- does he say, I will give it into your hand? No, what's he say? I have given. That's past tense language. And so what the Lord's trying to lay out for Judah is like, hey man, the, the battle's over here. We've been singing this song recently a lot as a church. Like, I'm fighting a battle you've already won. We quickly forget as believers, like even as we struggle, even as we wrestle, even as we press forward and we experience difficulty and pain, Jesus has walked out of the grave. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so Judah refuses to receive a victory that has already been secured for him. And more than that, it was denial of his own heritage. If you go back to Genesis chapter 49, we see at the end of Jacob's life, he's pronouncing blessings and some curses over some of his sons and and speaking the word of the Lord over them that was setting really a trajectory for who they would become. And this is what he says of Judah in Genesis 49, eight through 10. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It was promised to Judah that one day the Messiah would come from him. That ultimate victory would come from the line of Judah. And so here we are, Genesis 49. God had promised through Jacob that Judah's hand would be on the neck of his enemies. And then we see it in Judges 1. God says, I have given the land into your hand. 
You wanna ruin your life, ignore the word of God because what happens when you ignore the word of God is you will start making decisions based in fear and not decisions based in faith. You'll forget who God is. You'll forget what he has done for you. You will forget what he wants you to have and what he desires for you to walk in. We go on in verses eight through 15. This is how this continues to unfold among the people of Judah. It says, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. And from there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Akesh, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So now put this example of Caleb's family up against what we just saw. Here's a group of people who are now eager to step into everything that God wants them to have, who are trusting in the Lord's provision, who are trusting in his promises, who are trusting in in everything he desires for them to have. But but again, this is what some of us like to do, uh, just like Judah did. You know, we'll we'll put ourselves in Judah's shoes and and, and we'll say something like this. You're like, well, yeah, you called me to go, but you didn't tell me Simeon wasn't allowed to come. And so these are the games that we like to play with our sin, right? Like, well, you know what? Well, God doesn't say, there's nothing in the Bible says I can't cuss somebody out in traffic on a Tuesday. Show me that verse. Show, show me this. Like we're just trying to constantly weasel our way out of just taking God at his word, receiving what it says and moving on. This is something I did when I was, when I was in college. When um, I was a student up at App State in Boone for a couple years if you don't know App State, we're that tiny school that beat Michigan like 16 years ago. And um, still got to hold on to that. We're, we're clinging to that till, till we die. And so like good college students, you know, we were constantly trying to finagle our way around rules at football games. And so if you go to Kid Brewer Stadium, right outside the stadium, there's this big sign, like most stadiums, of prohibited items. This is what you cannot bring into the stadium. And so, you know, no drugs, no alcohol. And then there's this list of noise-making devices, you know, no whistles, no air horns, stuff like this. Um, this is not an endorsement of the movie, but really popular at that time was the movie Anchorman with, with Will Ferrell. And, um, you know, his device that he uses to summon his friends is a conch shell that he like, like blows it basically as a horn. And we were wondering, is this really possible? And so I've got a friend named Anthony and he had this giant conch shell and he happened to have a miter saw because he was a construction tech guy. And he cuts off the end of the conch shell and he blows it. And guys, it was like a trumpet. It was this extremely loud noise. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at this going, hey, listen, there's nothing on that board that says we cannot bring a conch shell into a football game. And so that's what we do. We go into the game and this, we got away with this for a couple weeks. Anytime App State scored a touchdown, Anthony would blow the, the conch shell horn, right? Like you just hear it all across the student section. Well, finally, you know, a few games into this, stadium security comes this mid game and they're like, hey, you, you can't have that. And we're, how do we all respond? We're like, no, 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 no. We've seen that list. There's nothing on that list that says we can't bring a conch shell into the stadium. And in that moment, you know, we're joking. Like we weren't being like, we, we put it away. Like we didn't fight against it. We weren't, we weren't being, you know, TikTok punks or something like that. Like we, we, we put it away. 
and, and, and went with it. But if you could have seen the look on his face, it's like, yeah, but you know, if you're not a, a moron, you could probably <laughs> rightly discern the angle that we're coming from here. It's not necessarily a letter of the law, it's a spirit of the law type, type thing. And so we constantly try to finagle our way around the word of God. We didn't specifically say I couldn't. And now we see this picture of a family that just takes God at his word. They take God at his word. They do the opposite. So again, if you want to ruin your life, ignore what God says. And second, if you want to ruin your life, just reject what God offers. Reject what God offers. Now, quick time out. Um, those of you who always keep track of my lap times on points on Sunday mornings, the first point was by far the longest this morning. Um, we're, we're speeding up a little bit more here. If you want to ruin your life, just reject what God offers. What we see through this picture of the tribe of Judah and Caleb's family is a group of people who are eager to lay hold of everything that God wants them to have. You know, it's important that we see that this is Caleb's family in particular, because this, what, what do we, if you know the Bible, you know why Caleb and his entrance into the promised land is such a big deal. Because it was 40 years before when God's people had been delivered from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, Moses sends in Numbers chapter 13, 12 spies into the land, say, go check this place out that God has promised to give us. And so the spies come back with their report and Moses is like, hey, tell us what you found. And they're like, man, look at the size of this fruit. And the land is flowing with milk and it's flowing with honey. But then most of the spies went, but there's some pretty big people there. Some giants in the land we can't drive those guys out. And among all the people, there was one guy, Numbers 13.30 tells us, named Caleb, who stands up in the assembly and he says, no, let us go up now and occupy it. For we are able to overcome it. The people say no. Joshua and Caleb and Moses, they're ready to go and the rest of the people are like, no. And the Lord, it's one of those moments where he says, you know what, I've had enough with this generation. And so his judgment on the people was, he said, you are gonna wander in this wilderness until this generation dies. And from that generation, it was only Joshua and Caleb who were able to lead the people into the promised land. And, and so listen, by the time it, it, it finally comes ready for this, like, like you know, man, J Caleb here, he's, he's like a crusty World War II vet. He's been waiting to storm Normandy for like 40 years, right? I mean, he is just so ready, but he's older now. He's older now. I mean, he's, he's advanced in years. And so he's, he's really past like a war fighting stage. So he just makes this deal. He's like, hey, whoever takes this, this land I've been waiting on, I'll give you my daughter as, as a wife. And, and so Othniel, who's the first judge, we'll learn more about him next week. He's like, that sounds like a good deal. And so he goes in, he captures the city. And apparently his daughter, Aixa, was all for it because she goes to him. She's like, hey, you need to go ask my dad for some land. And since dads are not allowed to say no to their daughters, Caleb's like, absolutely, here's the land. And he gives her the good springs and the Dejeb. And this is the beautiful picture that we see through this marriage of Othniel and Aixa. We see a group of people who are eager to step into and receive everything that God wants for them to have. And more than this, the picture that this marriage paints for us, it's this beautiful picture of a conquering warrior and a willing bride who are eager to step into the blessing, into the inheritance that God wants them to have. We see that exact same picture in Revelation 20 through 21, where we see Jesus Christ, who is the conquering warrior, and we see his church, the bride that he loves, who's willingly entering into the blessings of their inheritance for eternity forever. And there was a whole generation of people who looked at that and said, no thank you. 
The summer um, before I, or the, the spring before I went to, to basic training for the army, I was really contemplating. I was like, you know, am I going to do this? Am I not going to do this? I was meeting with recruiters. And, and, and part of what I was wrestling with is that my dad, uh, through his job, he had this opportunity to take me and my brother on like a two-week cruise to Alaska. And uh, man, you know, so, so we're talking about like all expenses paid, all expenses covered. You know, my, my dad, but just me and my brother just hanging out for a couple weeks. And something malfunctioned in my 19-year-old brain where I looked at that offer and said, you know what, I think instead of that, I just want to commit myself to a summer where somebody's like screaming at me the whole time and, and tells me how terrible of a human being I am and just totally breaks down everything about me as a person. And I'm going to crawl around in the sand. I hate sand. I, I just, I, the Lord put me on the coast, but man, I hate sand. I'm a pool guy. And, and, and I'm not feeling that. Some, somehow, I mean, just, just almost every single year, I think about that trip. I'm like, how did I say no to that? Could I not have delayed just like a couple more months? To go, like, how did I leave that on the table? This is what so many of us do as followers of Jesus. Like, like he's offering you, man, like five-star resort. And it's like, you know what? I really just like sleeping in the desert. I like misery. I like there not being food. I like there not being water. I like discomfort. I like pain. I like problems. No, thank you. And we leave all these things on the table. And the result is, man, we're just, we're just miserable, like we quickly forget, like the victory over our sin has been won. God has not just delivered us from the penalty of sin and death. He's delivered us from the power of sin in our life. I want to say something this morning that I hope lifts a little bit of a burden off of some of your shoulders. Did you know that you're allowed to be a Christian and not be miserable about it? Did you know you're actually like allowed to enjoy this? You're actually like allowed to have fun following Jesus you're allowed to look forward to gathering together for church every single week and engaging the Lord in his word and in worship and being in community and fellowship with others. You can enjoy reading your Bible. You can enjoy praying. You can enjoy fasting. We can enjoy all these things. God means for you to enjoy him and to enjoy fellowship with him and fellowship among his people. And man, it's like some of us are just committed to being miserable. Like we're, we're so committed to the life that we were living. It's like, you know what? Like I know God's offering me freedom. He's offering me hope. He's offering me joy. But I, I just, you know, kind of like to be a miserable person and just want to sit over here and stay in my problems and stay in my pain. I, I said, I wasn't going to say this in the first service, but I already said it then and you're going to hear it from them. And it's just, here we go. It's out of the bag this morning and um, we'll just do it at all three. Why not? You know, I had this conversation recently, and it's not the first time I've, I've, I've heard this, this conversation, and um, with someone who attends our church, and it's something they heard from someone that they heard from someone else, and it's, so you can kind of paint the picture here. It's just kind of a grapevine thing and of, of a person who was uh, having a conversation about our church and how much they love being here and, and, and enjoyed being here, and then had a friend who was basically like, hey, you need to stop going to that church. It's like a cult. I mean, okay. And um, that word has like an actual definition, by the way. And, um, and, and their thing, and as, as they pressed into this, it was just like, well, you know, like everybody knows it goes there. They're just talking about like being there all the time. And like, you know, you see people like piling into this parking lot every single week and piling into this room every single week. And they're just constantly talking about their church and this and that and the other. And I'm just like, well, man, heaven forbid we actually enjoy this. Heaven forbid we not be miserable at the church that we're part of. And we actually enjoy inviting people into it. I mean, like, man, it's like 25 degrees on a Sunday morning at, at, during a time in history that is the largest mass exodus of professing believers in the history of the Western church. And look what God's doing here. And there's zero apology for that. 
Like we praise God, like we're meant to enjoy this. We're meant to enjoy this. We're meant to radiate the joy of Jesus Christ. And God means for you to actually enjoy this. He means for you to enjoy him. He means for you to enjoy his word. He means for you to enjoy his blessing. So if you want to ruin your life, just leave all that on the table. Just reject it. And double down in your misery and your sin. Skipping down just a little bit here. Um, we, we see in the, in the next few verses, this conquest continues. When we get down to verse 19, Judah is painted mostly in a positive light in, in chapter one. But here's a little bit of a departure. Again, it's one more of those little cracks in the foundations that, that's actually a fault line that runs through the book. It says this in verse 19. It says, the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but... If you're a, a circle things, underline things in your Bible person, maybe just check that word, but here's the issue. He could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now again, pause. When God's people were fleeing Pharaoh's army, what was Pharaoh's army using to pursue them? Was that a problem for the Lord? Not even a little bit. So again, we're good. We're good against spears. We're good against swords. We're good against shields. Bows and arrows, we can handle that. Those chariots, though, that's a little bit too much. So again, you want to ruin your, your life, then ignore what God says. Reject what God offers. Third, if you want to ruin your life, just trust your own strength. Trust your own strength. Try to live. Try to operate. Try to follow Jesus completely in your own strength. Again, let, let's sympathize with, with them a little bit. Just put yourself in, in their shoes. You know, imagine you're fighting in the Revolutionary War, you're a farmer with a pitchfork, and then a tank rolls up. That's different. You know, and this was kind of, if you look at history, this was really the rise of, of the Iron Age, and, and this was a, a level of technology that they did not yet have and they had not yet engaged, and so they were good up to a certain point. But how quickly they forget the victory wasn't contingent on their ability to fight. It was contingent on God's ability to fight for them. And he had already promised them victory. He said, I have given the land to you. It's been secured for you. I've made the provision for you. And, and so this is an important detail for us to understand. From the people's perspective, they're saying we can't. From God's perspective, he's saying, no, the problem isn't that you can't. The problem is you won't. I've won it for you. It's been done for you. It's finished for you. Just, just move forward. Show up and breathe. And it's done. And they couldn't go that far. As soon as they saw those chariots of iron, they're like, we're out. This is something that we can no longer handle in our own strength. And man, this is what so many of us do when it comes to our battle with sin. It, it's, we do this weird thing, like we trust that God can deliver us from the penalty of sin and death, but he can't deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. And so men in particular, man, I, I just want to press into this. How many guys I've heard, it's just like, well, you know, my, my grandfather was an angry man, and my father was an angry man, and that's just kind of who I am. It's in my DNA. It's in my nature. Nothing's going to change about that. And, and it's just kind of, we accept it. It's just who we are. Now, we claim to be following Jesus. The one who overcame the grave, but man, this, this little sin we're wrestling with, too much for him. And the difference, it's, the, the issue is not, not that we, we can't move past it, the issue is we won't. We won't get the counseling we need, we won't get the help that we need, we won't surround ourselves with people who can hold us accountable. Same thing when it comes to lust. Oh my gosh, it's so much more than I can bear. 
It's so much more than I can handle. I just can't control myself. I just, just can't help myself. We're saying we can't. God's saying, no, the issue is you won't. You won't put safeguards in your life. You won't invite accountability. You, you won't put people in your life who will ask you difficult, hard, probing questions. I mean, we just wave the white flag. And guys, I understand, like, it's one thing to acknowledge a struggle with sin, but as followers of Christ, you never accept a struggle with sin. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way for escape that you may be able to endure. This is one of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. Oftentimes you hear people read that verse and say, see, the Bible says God won't give you more than you can handle, and that's not what it says. Guys, everything is more than we can handle. If, if you're in this place today that you're just like, oh my gosh, my anger, it's too much. Lust, it's too much. Pride is too much. My jealousy, it's too much. If your overwhelming senses, it's all too much. Listen, you're right. You're right. It is too much for you. It's not too much for him. The victory against your sin has already been won. And here, here's the reality. Man, we don't control what tempts us, Right? We don't control the desires that we feel. We don't control these things. And, and the reality is for some of us, you may very well have some things that you struggle with every day for the rest of your life. But the hope we have in Jesus, what drives us through that struggle, what keeps us pressing in in our sanctification and submitting ourselves to God's word and to his will for our life is we know that this sin ultimately has been conquered by Jesus Christ. We know, man, the day is going to come, listen, you never will feel angry again. The day is going to come, you never face temptation again. You never have evil desires again. Nobody ever gossips about you again. You never gossip about anybody else again. You will no longer feel Ill, Ill will against anyone who's among you. That day is coming. That victory has already been won for us through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the confidence of knowing that victory has been secured that presses us forward in the battle in the here and now. That's what's pushing us forward. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and other religious systems. What we have to recognize, guys, is we are not, as believers, working for our victory. We work from our victory. The beach has been secured. Victory has already been won. Battle's still going on. We've got an enemy who's not given up, but he has been defeated by the cross in the empty grave of Jesus Christ. And we get to receive freely as a gift of God's grace that victory. When it comes to our sanctification, which is, which is us just growing daily to become more like Jesus Christ, understand we are not passive observers in this. We are active participants. So, so think of sanctification like, like this. Um, back at Christmas, we, uh, there was a community group. Shout out to the Eatman and McCall community group, by the way. They, they got our family a gift card. Emily and I, our favorite restaurant locally is, is Old Bull Tavern. We've been in Beaufort uh, 11 years. That's been our favorite date night spot since, since we've been here. And so this community group is, is part of an appreciation thing, got us a gift card to, to OBT. And so um, we, you know, we've, we've been once already. I think we've got one more date night uh, logged in on, on this one. This is what would be really, really foolish of us, is to receive this free gift, like, hey, this has been made, it's paid for, just show up, order what you want, this will cover it. It would be really, really foolish of us to get that and then complain. It's like, you know, we just, we just don't have any money to eat at Old Bowl. Provision's been made. The provision has, has been made. 
we just have to participate in it. We just have to show up. And, and it is God who sanctifies us. Like, we don't do this work on our own. It's the Spirit of God dwelling within us who's making us more like Jesus Christ. But church, understand, you are not a passive observer. You are an active participant. The battle is over. The victory is won. All you have to do is show up and breathe. And then what you find is you show up and breathe, that it was even God who was making you show up and breathing within you. It's all grace. But God has provided everything that we need in order to walk in victory in him. So again, if you want to ruin your life, just reject that. Keep trying it in your own strength. Keep trying it in your own power. Keep being miserable as a follower of Jesus Christ because you think God's love for you is based on your ability to perform for him, and it's not. It's based on the performance that he's completed for you. Let's wrap this up. Chapter two, verses one through five. We're gonna do this quickly um, because we're starting in verses one through five together next week, but we need to make sure we understand how this closes up. End of chapter one, what we just see the repeated cycles of, of disobedience. You see all of the names being listed from Manasseh to Ephraim to Zebulun to Asher, Naphtali, all of these tribes. The re re repetition that we see over and over and over again is that instead of driving out the Canaanites the way they were supposed to, they allow the people to dwell among them. And, and they, they just kind of give in to these, these things. And so this is what happens, chapter two, verses one through five. The Lord pronounces judgment on this. It says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And we'll talk about the significance of that next week. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So if you wanna ruin your life, ignore what God says. Second, reject what God offers. Third, trust your own strength. Fourth, if you wanna ruin your life, just do your own thing. Just do your own thing. We see it over and over and over again at the end of chapter one. They did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not drive out the inhabitants. Instead of pushing sinful influences out of their life, they made peace with them. And they allowed it to dwell among them. And so again, this is the same pattern that some of us fall into. By the Spirit of God within us, in the name of the victory that's been won for us by Jesus Christ, we should be working to drive sin out of our lives. But instead, what so many of us do is we allow sin to set up a tent in the front yard. It doesn't feel like a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that serious of a departure from God's word. It doesn't technically say I can't. And so we allow the tent to be set up, and then this is what happens. Every time the tent becomes a village, the village becomes a city, and the city becomes a king, and then they conquer you. And that sin that we should have been working to drive out, we've made peace with it, and we let it set up camp right in our front yard. And part of the reason why, we'll see as we go through Judges, that the Lord is continually calling his people to drive out the nations from among them is because this is the unfortunate reality of God's people. They were called to be a light to the nations, but the story we see over and over and over in the Old Testament is that instead of positively influencing the nations with the light, the nations negatively influence them towards the darkness. 
And this is where we all just have to be completely honest with ourselves. And I really want to press into you a little bit this morning. It's easy for us to deceive ourselves. Like, well, you know, we, we can't hide from the world. We can't shelter from the world. We've got to be lights in the darkness. Like, yes and amen. But that assumes that your light is actually burning. And, and this is what happens. You, you take that mentality, but if you're just being completely honest, that place you keep going to, that person that you keep hanging out with, that group of friends that you're so attached to, you're not positively influencing them to Christ. They are negatively influencing you away from Christ. And you need to have the awareness that for this season of your life, say, you know what I really need? I need some godly counsel. I need some discipleship. I need to become better grounded in my faith so that I can be equipped to one day go back and reach them. But we have to be so, so aware. Like we, we cannot just say, hey, we're God's people but, and we're pursuing God's will, but I'm, I'm gonna go do it my way. I, I've heard what he said, I see what he wants, but I think I'm the exception to all that, and so I'm, I'm just going to start going my way and doing my own thing. The quickest path to ruining your life as you reject the word of God is instead of driving out sin in your life by the power of his Holy Spirit and in the victory of Jesus Christ, you let it make peace in your heart and in your home. And instead of being an active participant in your sanctification, you act like a passive observer. And then, man, we blame God when things go wrong. When he's like, I've made every provision that you need. All you had to do was show up. Now, here's the good news this morning. Good news in a sermon about ruining your life. By learning how to ruin our lives, we also know how not to ruin our lives. So if you don't want to ruin your life, do the opposite of everything you just heard. If you don't want to ruin your life, instead of ignoring what God says, listen to what he says. Trust who he says. Trust his word. Receive his word without feeling like you have to help it. Receive what he says. Receive what he offers. God means for you to know joy and life and peace in him. You don't have to be miserable as a Christian. You can actually enjoy this and walk in faith and harmony with him. Instead of trusting your own strength, trust in his strength. You, you, got, you got Superman on the bus, man. Like, why, why are you trying to push this thing on your own from behind? Instead of trusting in your strength, trust in his. And instead of doing your own thing, walk the path that he has laid before you. Every provision has been made. The victory has been won. Everything you need will be given to you. You just got to show up and breathe. And even that is a work that he's doing.